0: Before the end of the story *The Shawshank Redemption, the character named Red, who has been in prison for many years, is finally paroled into the uncertainty of the free world. He finds a job in a grocery store and a small place to stay, but instead of relishing his freedom, he pines for his former life behind bars. The sentiments of Red are not unlike those of Israel in our study of the book of Exodus. After hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, The Israelites grumble as they begin to encounter the harsh realities of freedom. They feel hunger and thirst and these sensations are not merely metaphorical. They are not hungry for freedom and thirsty for justice. They need real food and water. The irony of it is that they now look back with a certain nostalgia for the good old days of Egypt. If only we had died at the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt as we sat by our kettles of meat and ate our fill of bread. Their complaint is against Moses and Aaron, but ultimately it is against God. And this is the dangerous thing about nostalgia. We would be willing to go back to an old way of life at the expense of a new and better, if more difficult, way of life. Exodus teaches us that God leads people into freedom and cares for them through the uncertainties of their journey. If the basic meaning of the word nostalgia is an aching desire to go back home, The God of the Exodus is saying, you have a new home now, and I'm going to lead you there. But Israel has a lot to learn, and their first lesson is faith in God. One month into their journey, they're hungry, tired, and thirsty. Rita Burns, in her commentary on Exodus, says the crisis over food is really a crisis of faith. The people ask, is the Lord in our midst or not? How could the people question God's presence among them, having witnessed God's marvels on their behalf? We might ask the Israelites as well as we ask ourselves, do we trust God or not? A month after leaving Egypt, whatever supplies the people took with them had been depleted. They finished off the bread of slavery, and now they must rely solely on God. They are at His mercy in the desert. Perhaps this is what God is waiting for, The Lord is more than patient, even generous to those who complain, providing manna each morning and quail in the evening. It's important to note here that the quail and the manna are natural to the desert. According to various commentators, what is known as manna is produced in the Sinai desert by a type of plant lice that punctures the fruit of the tamarisk tree and excretes from the juice a flake that disappears in the heat of day, but can be collected in the cool of the morning and even baked into a kind of bread. It is sweet to the taste and has a high amount of sugar and carbohydrates. As to the quail that came to the camp in the evening, migrations of birds coming from Africa or the Mediterranean are often exhausted enough to be easily captured and thus become a source of protein in the desert. So the manna and the quail are natural phenomena used by God to feed the people. The extraordinary events that accompanied their leaving Egypt are a thing of the past. No longer are they to rely on even or expect God to work a miracle when they get in trouble or have a need. Soon they'll have to don their battle gear and fight the Amalekites. God is with the people, but they must grow in faith by recognizing God's presence in nature and in the grace they receive as they battle the desert and the hostile peoples who live there. Faith is tested in the crucible of trial and grows on the cutting edge of difficulty. The gift of manna comes with some regulations. Each family is to gather the amount of one omer per person, about two quarts for each day. They're neither to hoard nor to gather any more than they need nor any less. If anyone were to gather too much manna on a given day, it would spoil. The exception to this rule is that on the day before the Sabbath, the day of rest, The people are to gather enough of the manna to tide them over through the Sabbath. Only on this weekly occasion does the extra amount collected not spoil. Why would God tell the people not to hoard or to gather too much manna? This regulation appears to be a test of the people's faith in God's providence. They're allowed provisions for one day only. When the daily allotment is consumed, will there be again enough for tomorrow? The people will have to trust and see upon waking each morning whether God has remembered them. We say in the Lord's Prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for the day that lies before us. Help us to trust that if you clothe the lilies of the field and feed the birds of the air, how much more will you supply the needs of your children? This trust in God's providence to provide extends to the Sabbath rest as well. The Israelites are not to harvest manna on the Sabbath to allow for a day of rest from their normal duties. And why is this? The Sabbath rest for the Jewish people on Saturday and Christians on Sunday is to be a day on which God's people can relax their grip on life and responsibility and turn the world over to God. The Sabbath rest is essentially an act of faith. It says that we can trust God so much we can spend the day not doing what we normally do the other six days of the week. On the Sabbath, we can take time to praise and thank God by joining our faith community in worship. We can even take the time to dress for church or synagogue in something other than our most casual clothes. Such an act of trust may yield surprisingly good results and maybe a little less stress in our lives. Let us now turn our attention to the manna itself and what meaning it might hold for us as Christians. Our closest connection to the manna in the desert we find in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. Here Jesus feeds over 5,000 people in an area where there seems to have been little food. Yet Jesus feeds everyone from a few loaves of barley bread and some dried fish. Everyone on that occasion has plenty to eat and there are 12 basketfuls of fragments left over. Next day, the crowd seek out Jesus because, as he says to them, they've had their fill of the loaves, and not because they had seen signs filled with spiritual meaning. The people remind Jesus, Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus replies, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Jesus responds to the natural hunger of those who are following him with a call for a deeper hunger the spiritual hunger for God, the desire to share in divine life. In the Sinai Desert, the people complain because they're tired of walking and are physically hungry. God responds patiently by supplying them with manna each morning and quail each evening. After the multiplication of loaves and fish, the crowds want to make Jesus their king. Why? Because he can satisfy their physical short-term needs. But he offers something more the real heavenly bread himself. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And like your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Jesus, the very Son of God, the Word of God, knows that only God can truly satisfy human spiritual hunger. Jesus teaches people what he has heard from the Father and he feeds them with his body and blood in the Eucharistic elements of bread and wine which he identifies with his flesh and blood. In the theology of John the evangelist, we see the exodus trek through the desert as the sojourn of the people of God in this world. In addition to regular sustenance, people need spiritual nourishment, the life to the full. In chapter 15 of John, Jesus refers to himself as the vine and he calls us the branches. In the Eucharist, Jesus sustains us with his flesh and blood much like a vine feeds its branches. Unless we are connected to the true vine, we die. Unless we eat the bread from heaven, we have no life within us. As we move on to chapter 17 of Exodus, we encounter once again the situation in which the people, now thirsty, complain to Moses. Moses places their argument in its proper context. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to a test? With no seeming memory of the having been fed by the Lord, now the Israelites appear to be asking, what have you done for us lately? The wilderness is a place of illusion and mirage, but instead of thinking they see what is really not there, the people don't see what is actually there, namely God's providential care. God no doubt would have provided water anyway, but perhaps this was a test of Israel's patience or faith. If the Lord had given them food, Could not water have been far behind? In Moses' view, this quarrel for water is a test for God. The people once again begin to remember Egypt. The Israelites wonder, is the Lord in our midst or not? So God directs Moses to strike the rock with his staff and bring forth water the people and their livestock can drink. Though they test God, he patiently responds to their thirst by having Moses strike the rock with the staff, the same staff, that turned the Nile into blood and parted the Red Sea. Because of the people's attitude of testing and quarreling at Rephidim, the place is renamed Massa and Meribah, meaning the place of the test and the place of strife, respectively. Early in their relationship with God, the Israelites are still learning how to trust God, even though they have already received ample evidence of the Lord's generosity. In the words of Psalm 95, they tried me though they had seen my works. I said, this people's heart goes astray. They do not know my ways. It will take forty years and many testings before they know God's ways. Even as Moses is contending with the people's thirst, Amalek wages war against Israel before they have a chance to leave the area of Rephidim. It appears that if thirst doesn't destroy Israel, warring desert tribes will. However, Against Amalek's army, while Moses keeps his staff raised, Joshua and Israel have the better of the fight. But as he tires and lowers his staff, Amalek begins to win. Supported by Aaron and Hur, Moses keeps the staff raised and Joshua gains the victory. The battle has lasted all day and has required the efforts of Moses and an entire army. Though God is present, Israel is learning to have a large stake in its survival as a people. In the early stages of the Exodus, God steps in with plagues and the dramatic events at the Red Sea. Now God seems to be working through nature as with the manna and quail and through the active cooperation of Israel. Perhaps there is a lesson for us in this as we seek spiritual growth by cooperating actively with the grace that God gives us. In chapter 18, we again meet Jethro, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses. From his home in Midian, Jethro has heard of the exodus and the wonders of God that accompanied this event. He brings with him his daughter, Zipporah, who is also Moses' wife, and their two sons. This is more than a friendly visit. Jethro, though not a member of the community of Israel, is a religious person and has crossed the wilderness to hear firsthand what God has done for this people. Moses tells him all the Lord has done for the sake of Israel. In response, Jethro rejoices and blesses God for these happenings. Then he offers a burnt offering and sacrifices to God and shares in a sacred meal with Moses and the elders of Israel. Thus does Moses, in a sense, evangelize Jethro by telling him of all that God has done for Israel. Jethro, on his part, responds positively by honoring God as the greatest of all gods. Certainly, Jethro would have spread this good news when he returned to Midian. Israel has survived and is getting used to the desert living. And now the people must learn to deal with one another in the give and take of daily life. Once again, God offers no dramatic answers, no amazing last-minute escapes. Moses and the people must discover ways to cooperate and compromise in order to build a cohesive community of faith. Unless they do, the elements and aggressive desert tribes will destroy them before they reach Canaan. Moses attempts on his own to bring order to the lives of his people. But as Jethro points out to him, you will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. Before he leaves the camp to go home, Jethro, as though returning the favor for the hospitality, advises Moses on how to delegate his duties. Moses sits in judgment all day every day while people wait from morning until evening to bring their cases to him. When Jethro notices this, he advises his son-in-law to get help and to delegate this responsibility to others who can help him break the work down into manageable tasks. Moses' delegates can handle lesser cases while he takes the more difficult ones. This is sound advice even today for leaders of companies as well as pastors. Otherwise, their focus can be diverted from their primary goals. If we could summarize some learnings from these chapters of Exodus, we might say that God sets us free from our basic slavery to sin when we pass through the waters of baptism. But we then must respond to the promptings of grace as we live for God and others. The Lord doesn't always hold our hand in our personal wanderings, but is with us. Many times we must engage Amalek ourselves, but we are not alone in the fight, for God is with us and the community of believers is behind us with hands lifted in prayer on our behalf. We may be hungry and thirsty for God, for justice and for love, for peace, for employment, but God will somehow supply the bread and drink that we need even to the point of offering us the body and blood of His Son, the meal that gives us the strength we need to go on living with hope. We may be doing things all wrong, though with a good intention and not know where to turn, We then ask the Lord to send us a Jethro, a wisdom figure, a spiritual advisor, or just someone with common sense who sees things more clearly than we do. In all things, God is still leading us, sometimes obviously with wonders and signs, but mostly behind the scenes as we search this word in the scriptures, partake of the bread of life, and walk with our fellow pilgrims.